enjoy and subscribe. That's all I ask. I didn't mention it on my episode with uh, the upcoming guest you're going to hear, but this is, again, a continuation of my holy trinity of Peterborough multifaceted artists. We talk mainly about theater with all three, but it's not limited to theater, what they've done. One was with Sarah McNeely. Well, the second one is going to be with Kate Story. Now, Kate is a multifaceted artist with so many past artistic projects, I couldn't fit them into one series, I think. Never mind an episode. But we will continue, we will concentrate on her Governor General-nominated book in young people's literature called Urchin. It's a historical novel set in 1901 in St. John's, Newfoundland, where a girl takes on the identity of a boy. And her upcoming performance at Theatre on King from November 24th to December 3rd called Anxiety. I suggest you check that out. I couldn't get enough of Kate in this upcoming interview you're going to hear. I do apologize beforehand of some technical glitches you might hear, because sadly that's Zoom. But hopefully I minimize them. So here's my interview with Kate's story. Enjoy. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, congratulations, of course, for your Governor General nomination. That's that's quite impressive. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised, and uh, I'll take it though. <laughs> well, it's yeah, and uh, it's, uh, it's we're definitely going to we're going to get into that. But um, yeah, um, I, I just to step back uh, one step for a moment. Uh, so I was at. Uh, the premiere of uh, Titty Cakes, which uh, you, uh, you, I believe you directed. So, I did. Uh, yeah. Yes. And uh, I was quite uh, impressed by your land acknowledgement speech. I mean, oh. I was impressed by the whole thing. But, uh, you know, I, I'm used to it being coming, as a lot of things do, that are kind of uh, ritualistic, which it sort of has become. It becomes kind of like this, you know, kind of it can become this kind of dry thing that people get repetitive of but don't really think about what's being said basically what you know things we used to say in church years ago but uh, you you added a lot more i think meaning to it so i just uh, i i wanted to point that out so thanks tim yeah well i, I mean there i mean it's complex right but i yes. mean i i think they're important i i they've certainly been part of me learning um mm. But I think, yeah, they've certainly become, uh, it, it does feel a little like morning prayers at school. 
you know, mm -hmm. in that generation, we had to say prayers. And uh, I don't think that's helpful. And uh, yeah, I think uh, from what I've been told, you know, by my indigenous and mixed ancestry colleagues, you know, it's like important to put a bit of yourself into it. And mm -hmm. at the same time, it's not about me as a settler. No, 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 no. no. Yes. But, but so, yes. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Um, and I must uh, ask as well, like, I, I, I know it was hardly your first time doing it, but how did it feel directing Titty Cakes? How did that? Because a, a bit like the show you're doing now, it's really yeah. a personal kind of tale. And it's not, uh, I don't think it's one that can be redone. You know, if it's Oh, like, no, it's not yeah. like somebody else is going to put the show on. It's Sarah, yeah, no, you know, Sarah's, no, Sarah's show. No, no. Um, I wasn't just a director, so it, I was the dramaturg as well. So Sarah and I worked on the piece. You know, we've been working on it for a long time together. And I mean, it's very much her work. But uh, it wasn't like I, you know, I came in with a script, you know, and then met Sarah and and then we did the show. So it it was a very integrated process. So, you know, it didn't feel like um, when you're just a director, you know, which is also a lot of work. And I, I, I adore directing. But uh, it, it was very intense. Uh, it took sort of everything, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, politically, and totally worth it. Totally worth it. But yeah, very integrated and and full experience, very rich. And uh, we've, we're all kind of taking today off. And uh, I feel like, you know, really happy, but also incredibly tired. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, in the end, like, I mean, I'm just I'm so happy for Sarah. I mean, she's happy mm -hmm. with the piece which is the main thing. And, and the feedback we're getting from audiences is just over the moon. I mean, I think it's such a necessary story. So I was just really honored to be part of the whole process. And the fact that Sarah trusted me with this process is, is tremendous. I, I just feel really honored. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was, I can only speak again for the night I was there, but I was there. I was uh, one, I think of pretty much everyone giving a standing ovation. So I think. That's, oh yeah. People uh, spring up. It's wonderful. Yes, yeah. Yes, no, it's yes. been great. Yeah, yeah. 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 Really, really, really happy with it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, urchin when i think of that word i guess i think of i know it has multiple meanings but one i think of is kind of a you know the mischievous young child kind of thing which i know has something to do with it but um so um i admit i have not read it but uh you you can tell me if i'm getting any of these details wrong so it's basically a his historical fantasy uh in early 20th century newfoundland and it's uh dorothea the main character 13-year-old girl disguising herself as Jack to kind of investigate or out of curiosity checking out Marconi who was in Newfoundland at that time receiving the first tran transatlantic radio signal so um, I mean there are some obvious connections there for you being a Newfoundlander yourself uh, but uh, what, what kind of inspired this sort of story yourself I guess I must ask um, I'm gonna go back and then go forward Sure. You're going to discover, Tim, there's no problem getting me to talk. So anyway. Uh, uh, no, that's good for me. Yes. <laughs> and you're not wrong in anything you said, except uh, in terms of like how it gets received. But two words. One is girl mm -hmm. uh, and the other is uh, fantasy. So uh, and it's really interesting. Right. Uh, I feel both of those things. So one thing, this book, like my very, very, very first novel, Blasted. Uh, also dealt with sort of fairy lore from back home, which I, mm -hmm. I grew up with some, you know, I grew up with some people talking about this. My father had three experiences that he talked about. Uh, and 
Uh, so in Newfoundland, people don't necessarily receive this stuff as fantasy. <laughs> I to say like, oh, we all believe in the we folk. I really do not want to contribute to the sort of CBC idea about Newfoundlanders, the the friendly and slightly dim people, you know, who who still believe in in stupid, you know, fairy tales. But mm-hmm. I mean, it just was a little closer to the bone that stuff. And I mean, you find that in all, actually most cultures have a lived folk experience, and it's really only sort of. Upper Canada, you know, we've kind of talked ourselves out of it here, I guess. And, you know, a lot of a lot of colonization does that. But, you know, you can have electricity right next to what you call fairy lore. And I I I I base this on on folklore, both stuff I, I grew up with, but also, uh, you know, academic folklore, like like stories have been collected at Memorial University of Newfoundland, about you know, local uh, Newfoundland uh, encounters with the the little strangers, the wee folk, you know whatever you want to call them, the good people. Uh, so is it fantasy? Sure, maybe. But uh, I don't really think of it in that category, in that genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love fantasy. I grew up Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite books, adore it. But, uh, you know, and then Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my favorite authors, science fiction fantasy. But uh, yeah, so I just gonna say fantasy, maybe in air quotes. And then Dorothea. Uh, so writing the book was like a huge... Uh, and this sort of gets into your question a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started writing the book, um, really, the reason I I wrote it was because Marnie Parsons, who runs uh, running the Goat Books and Broadsides, the publisher, Marnie uh, actually more or less asked me to write this. And she was very specific. She wanted uh, Newfoundland historical, uh, young adult with fairies. That's what she said. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. So I got to pick what histor- historical period. I decided to go with uh, the South Side Road because uh, I grew up there. And, uh, uh, you know, hashtag own stories. That, you know, I'm not making fun of that at all. But, you know, the hashtag thing. So, you know, it's not to say that we can only write autobiography. You know, I, I don't actually think that's true. Um, but I think, you know, obviously as a white settler, I, I'm trying to be careful about what stories I'm telling. And so I, I was like, and I had much less time to write this than I normally like for a novel, like like way less time. I'm not a fast writer. Like I'll write the first draft fast, but it's crap. And then I need lots of time. And so I didn't have that time. So I'm like, ah, I have to really know what I'm doing, which was terrifying. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, like base it on what you know, base it on what you know, uh, and and what you feel like you can write about. And so I went Southside Road, Marconi, 1901, really exciting period. An Edwardian period was like, like in Newfoundland was a really exciting period. And uh, you know, the whole Marconi thing is something, you know, you can't really ignore if you grow up in St. John's. It's right there. There's Signal Hill. I grew up seeing it. There it was out the window, mm-hmm. uh, Cabot Tower and all that. And radio. I love radio. So that's exciting. Um, I started writing Dorothea. And, you know, I think like a lot of people, I have a very, uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I do. I like kids. I'm not unrealistic about children and who and what they are. They're humans, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think writing YA, there's something that can happen where you can sentimentalize your own imagination. And speaking for myself, I think I have done that in the past. And uh, what like what's appropriate? What is YA? I mean, is it just a marketing category? What is it? What is it? Right. And I found that I was really limiting the story and I wasn't all that interested in the story. Actually, I got really bored. I like I did a huge amount of research on Marconi. And at a certain point, uh, I don't know, I was less interested in him. He became a fascist later in life. He was a, a womanizer. I mean, you know, yes. and I was just like, oh, my God. But he was kind of fascinating to everyone, you know, all these descriptions of him. So I was like, OK, I've got to what? Why am I bored with him? And then uh, then I was a bit bored with Dorothea, which is terrible. Right. I was like, I'm not you got to find your main character. 
Mm-hmm. If the writer's bored, probably the reader will be too. And then I realized, like, I tend to get really, uh, like, a lot of my writing for adults, like, I write about uh, sex a lot. <laughs> I was like, I, I obviously enjoy writing about it. Um, and, you know, like, you know, it's just interesting to me. Like, what is it? Why do we do that? What, like, I mean, that's a procreative thing, which I, again, as a queer person, I'm like, that's not the only reason we have sex. So, you know, what is it? What is desire? Mm-hmm. And when you're quite young, I mean, I was quite young when I first started having sexual ideas, feelings, uh, and crushes on people. So I'm like, why am I sanitizing that right out of this book? What is this idea I have? Why why do I think? I mean, lots of young adult fiction deals with sex and deals with desire. And I, I knew I didn't want to get into like, um, I was sort of aiming for an, uh, both younger audiences that wouldn't necessarily want to have sex scenes. You know, I didn't want to get into that. But also I wanted to appeal to older audiences too. And then I realized it's because I didn't have a, Dorothea didn't have a crush on anybody. And then I was like, okay, so who does she have a crush on? It's like, oh my God, then Claire was just very clear to me. She hadn't been in the story. Her her brother Clinton was in the story and Claire didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as Claire was there, I was like, okay. And then I, then I actually went through a huge revelation about myself. So I, I mean, I'd already sort of come out to, you know, people near me uh, as a, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess, you know, I had said I was bisexual. And then, you know, as, as time has gone on, people say pansexual more often now, but, but you know, I never, I was like, what is that? What is that? And, and, wasn't really describing me and then uh then i realized dorothea was gonna have to impersonate a boy to get anywhere near marconi i mean there's no way a little girl in 1901 is getting anywhere near that that site and uh and she was really into it mm-hmm. dorothea was you know the characters start talking yeah. to you that uh, i'm not the only writer who says this so i don't think i'm you know uh, certifiable or anything like that and then i was like she's she's genderqueer and so am i and i ca- i got to it through her first i didn't figure that out about myself so writing this book was a huge revelation for myself and explained a lot of things about where and when I did and didn't fit in so it was like a massive revelation right and here I am I'm in my early 50s and I'm and you know part of that is growing up when I the generation I did we didn't have language like that you know uh but for me genderqueer is currently you know and these these labels uh these identities can shift and change and should and they're fluid right uh, for me at this point, genderqueer really describes it because uh, I think I've always been like a theater person in a way. And so I've always experienced gender as a bit of a performance. And I always, when I was younger, I thought everybody did. And it just some people were way better at being a girl than I was. They were just better at the the, the hair and the makeup and the the costumes and the the voice effect and the, the, the uh, personality effects you need to do to be a girl successfully in our society. And I just thought I was really bad at those things. And what I realized now is like, I just not quite a cis girl, but I'm not a trans. I don't identify as trans uh, at all. Um, I, at this point, although that could change again, uh, but just maybe non-binary, I could say that, you know? So anyway, it just really opened up that whole world for me. And then Dorothea came into focus and then I could write the book. Oh, okay. Well, there, 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 then you found your connection that way. And um, I, I take it till recently, even though when I was getting you left Newfoundland when you were 16. Yes. Until the COVID period, which I know for like a lot of people has been quite was quite traumatizing. At least part of it has been, even though we're not really out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you basically went back almost uh, every year. And I'm just wondering, I guess, even though that is the case, um, is it a kind of in a way suitable that like, uh, to an extent, both blasted and definitely, uh, 
urchin are kind of tales of kind of like the past because it's somewhere it's traditionally what sadly what you know sort of um has been the case with, with newfoundland i don't know if it is so much now but like you know there's so many tales everyone from like gordon pinson and onward like leaving newfoundland when they were younger and never not really ever coming back it was kind of like just for various reasons is that is that's kind of is that sort of do you feel like it's almost like suitable as kind of these are historical tales you're telling of your home province hmm um i'm not sure the historicity and me leaving are necessarily connected i mean blasted i was kind of writing about my own experience growing up on the south side road in a lot of ways although i conflated uh, you know i kind of accordion the history a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of the landscape and how it's been changed in my lifetime um and it was actually really lovely going back in time in st john's i learned a lot about my my home city uh writing this book things i just didn't know but also that i know this is going to sound like i mean it was such a privilege to grow up on the south side road when i did before the arterial road was built and and you could literally just walk out my back door up over the hill and just straight over into freshwater bay. I mean, there was nothing, mm. you know, you could just go and, and it was countryside and, and you know, just wilderness. It was wilderness. Also, there were a lot less trees on the hill. I think naturally it's forested, but it had been completely deforested to build the city, to build, you know, I imagine the dockyards, all that stuff. So, so in my lifetime, it looked like kind of the, the highlands of Scotland also deforested, yes. um, not, not their natural state, but that's kind of what we all grew up with. Right. Um, in terms of leaving, yeah, people leave. I mean, you know, it's often an employment issue for me, actually, now I can, I can identify pretty, pretty clearly that a great deal of why I needed to leave was this genderqueer, you know, experience. And I just felt really like I was never going to be able, I couldn't get my breath there. I just couldn't, I felt like I was gasping for air. I could not be myself. And I'm not saying that the people close to me were putting that on me. I, I mean, certainly my, 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 my friends, my immediate family, you know, have been fine, you know, with me sort of, I guess, essentially coming out to them through this book. And, uh, you know, so far, no, no, nobody's gone like, you know, never come home again, freak. Like, I haven't heard that from anybody. <laughs> <You know? laughs> times have changed, times have changed. But um, maybe it's an imaginative thing that living away from home for me uh opens the imagination a little bit you know mm. i think living there if i'd never left i not i have no idea how i if i ever would have tried to write about the place or if i i would have been able to write about the place uh and some of that has to do with um just me you know being uh, i'm quite you know uh just dealing with identity stuff um uh my father was also a very prominent uh figure in the newfoundland uh Newfoundland Studies Movement at Memorial University. He's one of the co-authors of the Dictionary of Newfoundland English. Very proud of his work, but I was always George Story's daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think my neurotic personality or whatever, I needed to get out from under that to find out who I was, too. So, right. yeah, so the leaving helped me maybe have some perspective on all that, mm-hmm. I guess I would say. And, yeah, the historical stuff is just fun. You know, I really enjoyed going back in time. And, and and now I see St. John's differently. Like, I see this overlay of what it might have looked like in 1901. I mean, it was pretty much most of it was new because it had all been burnt down, you know, mere, a very few, a handful of years before. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you, you've mentioned it a little bit, but I think it's um, not justified if I don't ask you, like, uh, sort of the precise role signal hill plays in the plays in the book itself and it's, yeah it's, yeah 
And for people what? unaware of Newfoundland, it's significance in itself. That's right. Yeah. So Signal Hill was called Signal Hill before Marconi got there. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to put signals up for ships, like uh, flags. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the harbor is, it's a beautiful harbor, natural harbor. It's, it's very large and has literally the entrance of the harbor is called the Narrows for obvious reasons. It's very narrow, but it means you have to, you know, the, as a ship, you know, they have to know how to, how to navigate that channel and all that kind of stuff. And so it was called Signal Hill before that. And then Cabot Tower had gone up, I believe it was in 1900 to celebrate Queen Victoria's centenary. Uh, and then she died yeah. the next year, yeah. rather paralleling our own times. As with the pandemic as well, uh, which is eerie for me, actually a little creepy because I started writing all it before, obviously, the pandemic and before our own queen passed away. But uh, so up up on Cabot Tower uh, and then Marconi arrived. And and at the time, he the official line and the the Newfoundland government, they threw themselves behind his project, um, including my great uncle, who was the inspector of lighthouses, which was a very important job back then. Uh, and so the whole government, they put themselves at his service because he said he was going to improve ship to shore communications. And so he, it was a great secret. He didn't tell anybody he was trying to receive a transatlantic radio signal. It had never been done and uh, uh, at all. And people said it couldn't be done. Scientists said it couldn't be done because of the curvature of the earth. So literally like between St. John's and Cornwall, where his station was, uh, that was going to send the signal. There was a wall, like essentially when you take the curvature of the earth into account, there was a wall of water, a hundred, I think like a, I'm trying to remember how tall it was, a hundred miles or a hundred meters. Sorry, can't remember. But anyway, like a giant mountain of, of the curvature of the earth. And technically he didn't have what it took uh, to, to achieve this effect. And uh, they didn't know about the ionosphere. So what ended up happening was the, the signals bounced. And that's why he was able to receive them. But he didn't know that. He had no idea. Mm-hmm. He was very confident, though. He'd been able to get increasingly longer distances. And he'd been doing it kind of secretly. Tesla was actually working on something at the same time. Uh, there were other people scrambling. Edison, like they were all, it was like a quite a cutthroat world. Uh, one of Marconi's geniuses was he was really good at patents. So he got patents for everything. So anyway, he wasn't going to tell anybody what he was doing. So he he arrived saying it was about ship to shore communication. But secretly, it was to get he knew all he had to do was get the signal. And he knew the Anglo-American trans, uh, what were they called? Then? The Anglo-American, um, they, they were telegraph company and they had a monopoly in Newfoundland. So they immediately shut him down. His lawyers shut him down. But he, it didn't matter. He'd gotten the publicity and he took off to Canada, actually, <laughs> to do the rest yeah. of the experimentation. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And I grew up looking at Signal Hill. There's a wonderful trail, a little bit treacherous mm-hmm. uh, and not for the faint of, of leg uh that you can get up there and uh it's a it's a great historical site um and all that so you know i did grow up with this idea of marconi and the transatlantic radio signal uh and that newfoundland was intimately uh uh part of that and when the titanic went down uh it was also a great deal of that you know the ability you know marconi was brought in to help uh with communications with that so yeah it became and then world war one it became a wonderful way to kill more people, unfortunately, but also to communicate. You know, radio has changed our world completely. You know, yes, completely and yeah. utterly. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna get uh, gonna get onto that. I guess yes. While you're saying, it, you know, people inventing stuff back then really got into this patent war, but mm-hmm. uh, you still kind of sense, I guess, that they still felt like what they were doing was improving life for people i don't know if we really get that sense anymore of anything that's 
uh, any made. It's more like just an update on her phone kind of thing. Yes, but, the, uh, that, that that excitement that was there. I think it's part of the attraction of the period for me. Yeah, there was a real mm-hmm. sense of excitement. They were they were mm-hmm. doing thrilling things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and um, is like uh, what is what is it that fascinates you about radio? Like you said, it's both. Uh, added to let to life both in a positive and negative way. I think you've said before, but uh, is it like from this experience that you're talking about of uh, what you've looked into or is other reasons as well? I guess I just, it was always on in the house. We always had CBC on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been fond of radio and just hearing voices from far away. Just mm-hmm. that you can do that. I, I just like kind of geek out over that. I've always been really fond of radio drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm a bit restless uh, physically and mentally. So I find, uh, I love that I could knit or like sweep my floor while listening to a radio drama and that it makes you imagine. So yet you become engaged immediately in a way that a film or, or television show, t- films or television shows, they kind of, it colonize you in a sense, right? Like you take it in and you're kind of just like watching it. It's great. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But when you're listening to a radio drama, you're really engaging with it because you have to picture everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a real activity, uh, real liveliness to the experience of a radio drama that I think I've always really loved. And I was when I was thinking about my 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 character Dor and and then who becomes Jack in a sense. Um, I mean that's something I feel that you know, it's not in urgent per se, but it's implied that as an adult, Dor probably is called Jack by their close, uh, you know, intimates, but uh, probably goes through the world still, you know, as Dor. Um, I guess of the the laws of the time, but uh, uh, the realities. But um, uh, now I lost my train train of thought. What was I talking about? This is terrible. As I said, I'm very tired today. Um, uh, yeah, over door. Yeah, somebody door, like yeah. like being having the identity <laughs> that 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 they do in 1901. That for them, this idea that I could talk to someone in as far away as India, maybe you know, or anywhere in the world, who maybe there's another young person out there who who's having these experiences who has a crush on her best friend you know like i'm not maybe the only person in the world who's had this experience so that i think is something and that's true of the internet too that we're able to connect uh mm-hmm. for good or good or evil <laughs> but yeah. find our our people out there you know and and uh open up our imaginations and 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 our definitions of identity and experience and and, uh, yeah, definitely. Yes. No, I, I grew up with CBC radio in my house all the time, too. Like, I, I, I honestly get emotional when I hear, like, as it happens, kind of theme music. Come on, Me, too. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. I don't think most people, definitely my children don't uh, no. yeah, like, you know, have any idea what we're talking about. But yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. true. And that that yeah. knowing you had to be there at a certain time to hear a show. Right. Yes, like, it's yeah. special. There's a ritual to it. You know? It was. It was definitely ritualistic. Yes. Um. Now, just one final specific note about the book. Like, um, I uh, again, I haven't read it, but what I've read of it and heard you say, am I correct in saying that the does the Reverend represent anything that you may have felt suppressive about the province, or at least your immediate surroundings of at the time when you lived in it? Uh, you know, it's very mixed. That like the Reverend is a really, I'm very fond of the Reverend. It's oh, actually, I love all the characters. I even love Clinton, even though he's a bit of a shit, but I just really like him. Um, so the Reverend, I've, and I mean, I could be, I could be walking on thin ice. I don't want to make like, you know, I don't want to get into like, uh, stereotypes, but on the one hand, I grew up, I felt that there was very much a kind of, 
uh, leveling uh, activity action going on in uh, among like like just when I was growing up that the certain like I didn't feel like I fit fit in in terms of all kinds of stuff stuff I mean I was a weird kid uh, I was an irritating kid uh, I had this weird what I now call genderqueer kind of identity which really you know people notice mm-hmm. and they they people love love trying to control the gender and sexuality of young people. It's just a fascist impulse. Like you see it all the time. The first thing the right always tries to do is control gender and sexuality of young people. Once you get older, they don't really care so much about you, which has been quite liberating actually for me. But uh, that just seems super important. And, and this traditional cultures are like this too. And, and, and I would say in, in general, yeah, the, the, my lack of uh, conformity to certain uh, ideas about what a girl was supposed to be uh, was a problem. But on the other hand, there was also a kind of adulation and and like fondness for eccentricity that I'm not sure. My mother was from Ontario. I guess I should say that she was from southern Ontario and she fell in love with Newfoundland as a young woman, came out, met my father. Um, You know, we were born, my brothers and I, and there we are. But uh you know, she always felt like a bit, you know, she it was a bicultural household. She always felt she always felt uh, misunderstood. But on the other hand, she fit in Newfoundland better, I think, a little bit because she was a very emotionally vivid person. I think she had a hard time uh, with her. her she was an only child. Uh, she had siblings who didn't survive. And uh, and my grandparents were lovely, lovely people, but they were very Southern Ontario. And it, like it was a pretty there was there was a very limited, I would say, limited range of acceptable emotions and how they should be expressed, I guess, was my experience growing mm-hmm. up. And. Uh, I don't know if that's, you know, if Southern Ontarians want to get mad at me for that, they sure can go ahead. But but that's that's kind of what I felt. And certainly living here now, I still feel that way. You know, I'm mm-hmm. always getting people going, whoa, you're so aggressive, you know, like, whoa, calm down. You know, like this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm actually fairly mild mannered, honestly, like compared to some people I know back home. Right. So on the other hand, in Newfoundland, there was also this, yeah, this accept this sort of uh, delight in eccentricity in in characters and often people who were different, if they were very different, uh, which might be, you know, they had second sight. Uh, they had what we might now call a disability. They might be little people. They might be, uh, you know, be born uh, with a disability on some level. Sometimes that was seen as a special thing. Like I, I got a real message growing up that these people were special, uh, some of them. And it had, it had to be a special, like, uh, and I nothing I could quantify, but combination of characteristics. Um, so the Reverend really is based on some historical figures from back home, uh, like three or four, uh, including one one fellow I do actually remember who used to, he'd, he'd get in front of any funeral that went through downtown. He'd get in front and he'd, he had a big staff and he'd march along mm-hmm. uh, and, and say, make way, make way, make way, you know, and uh, always wear a top hat. And uh, and then I just remember stories growing up. I didn't have this so much, but on the South Side Road, like like Liz, there was this woman called Marianne the Duck. I don't know why she was called that. And she had a, a weird walk that the, the Reverend has that I sort of stole that from Marianne the Duck, the one leg that won't bend. So twisting on the heel to walk. But she apparently had second sight. And and the women up and down the road were like, if she would come and do your fortune for you, that was a big deal. And everyone believed she did have second sight, even though she was also a bit of a like she was a weird uh, figure the little people who were a little afraid of her uh thought she was funny but also really respected her mm. so i don't know if that's specific to newfoundland uh but i feel like the reverend fits into that into that milieu in a way that feels to me very familiar i guess i would say right um 
Actually, that makes me think of uh, something else too. Like, uh, I don't, I'm just curious if you've ever thought of this. Um, so granted, I, I agree when it comes to things like, um, folklore and, uh, perhaps elements of superstition, uh, Southern Ontario is quite suppressed that way, probably because we, the, we were, the British kind of took everything over one time and didn't really have much of an independent identity. But that being said, I can see some, Peterborough is definitely like a much more like a milder version of it. But have you ever found any sort of linkage like uh, between where you grew up and Peterborough that way. I don't know, like our both have like these Irish Catholic heritage and, uh, you know, Peterborough, it's maybe taken a big whack the last few years, but it, it's definitely, I think most people who've ever experienced Peterborough, even if they don't live here, realize it has a bit of a unique culture compared to other, say, uh, bland suburbs or even, you know, traditional agricultural towns in the province. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say Southern Ontario has ghost stories. Mm-hmm. You know, so the supernatural is here and there's certain areas like the Ottawa Valley has some little people stories. And then some of my indigenous friends tell stories to me and I'm like, well, that sounds eerily similar to stories I grew up with. Right. So the stories are there. I think it's just more maybe you'll see more ghost stories here. But um, yeah, Peterborough, I I although I would have mm. never imagined I would end up living in Ontario, honestly, um, or Peterborough, like I came to Trent in 87 and and certainly didn't imagine I would stay. I mean, Peterborough was a bit of a grim place at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, had, I have no regrets about staying. And, and I think it does remind me a little bit of St. John's when I was growing up in the 70s uh, in terms of the arts scene, because and the university, of course, you know, it's wonderful brain. Like, it's just, you know, speaking as as a middle-aged person, I do really like having more younger people around. I was so sad when P- when PCVS closed, you know, it made the downtown mm-hmm. feel kind of hollowed out. And um, and then having people come from, you know, international students is, is so important. Um, but I think the art scene here, partly because of Trent, partly just because something about Peterborough uh, reminds me of St. John's in that the, there's some really, really uh, great artists here in all these different fields, and we can all work together. We can collaborate uh, interdisciplinarily. And in Toronto, that was much less likely to happen because there were so many artists, I think. And if you wanted to design a set for a theater piece, you would go to a set designer. Whereas here, I'll be like, Mm -hmm. I'll ask, you know, a visual artist I know, or I don't know, like like people just sort of dive in and collaborate uh, Mm -hmm. between disciplines. So I think there's something for me about that that's really important. And uh, yeah, I I fear for our town, obviously, right now, bit of a dumpster fire, isn't it? But, uh, you know, I think there's still some kind of weird Peterborough effect. Uh, And yeah, there's something a little bit eerie about Peterborough, which I think I feel really at home with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I I totally see what you're saying. So um, I apologize if I'm... uh dumping this on you right away but uh yes if you if you like i asked yesterday if you have any uh sort of reading you'd like to do that'd be that'd be sure. wonderful yes i've got it i've I got a passage here i could read um it's maybe about five minutes yeah sure that maybe is slightly longer perfect. i haven't yeah, i apologize no. i haven't timed it i usually do it oh time that's all right i have no that's the that's the freedom there's no time limits for me okay. so yeah great uh all right yeah this is this is a, a bit for merchants so uh, what do I need to say? 
It's 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 a ways through the book, and at this point, um, Dor is up on Signal Hill. Uh, Marconi with Marconi and and Marconi's two assistants that he brought with him, Kemp and Paget, are there. Yeah. Uh, so Dor is dressed as Jack. Uh, they've hired some local fellas. Uh, the, my research was a bit mixed on this front. These local guys were probably there were three of them or three or four of them, and they I think they were Coopers, but then. Some people who know more than I do about that stuff said they didn't know if they were Coopers. Anyway, doesn't matter. I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of like the idea that they were Coopers. So they're all up on the hill. And Dor also has this friend Oberon. And Oberon is uh, um, actually really lives with the Reverend. But Oberon mm. is a talking crow. Hmm. Uh, all right. I was swiftly revising my estimation of the day. It was, I decided, windy enough indeed. Paget stood on the leeward side, holding a great kite to the ground, while myself and the three hired men held a longer line. Marconi would bark out an order, Paget would release the kite, and then we'd pull. The idea was that a 600-foot-long wire attached to one end of the kite was supposed to stay grounded, touching the zinc plates. Another wire attached to the kite connected with a different wire leading through the hole of the window into the old fever hospital. And the kite itself, with all that aerial wire attached, was supposed to sail up to a height and stay there, acting as a receiver. All this in the tumultuous winds of Signal Hill. We hadn't achieved it for more than a split minute, not even once. And we'd been at it for two hours. Our arms ached, my hands, even through the gloves Kemp had given out, hurt from all the grasping at the recalcitrant cord. And as for Marconi, he was practically incandescent with irritation. What kind of fool would come to Newfoundland in December to fly a giant kite? One of the men grunted. I had to agree. Reducing shipwrecks was a laudable goal. But why now? Marconi could have come in the summer to test ship to shore. He could have kept experimenting back in Cornwall. No. To have decided to come here. Now. Surely Murph was right. It had to be a grasp for something bigger. All the time, I was aware of Oberon, on top of Cabot Tower, or circling around us in the air. The scattered glitter darted around the edges of my vision. I couldn't look straight at them. They danced on the extremities, flickering like sunlight on leaves. A memory of my dream, so long ago it seemed now, when I saw the man on the storm-tossed ship came to me. Those flickering beings of light... It had been Marconi I'd seen in that dream. It must have been. They hadn't wanted him to come. And in that dream, they'd recognized me too, fastened onto me. The thought struck me with a bolt of fear. They needed me. But were they friendly, uncaring, or did they want to destroy me? It seemed to me now that Marconi was surrounded by a crowd of them, darting, jabbering, enraged, Tiny, sparkling figures crystallized on the kite, thick on the cord, swarming the aerial wire. Only with my peripheral vision could I see them. Look straight on, and they weren't there. What do you want? I bent my thoughts at them. Why do you have my mother? Suddenly, the heavy cord went taut. The kite pitched wildly from side to side. Our feet scrabbled on loose scree, and the man at the front of the line lost his footing, went down. Without thinking... I leapt forward and took his place. The wind checked for an instant, giving the kite a bit of slack, and I wrapped the cord around my wrist for an anchor. Is that wise, came the thought. 
echoed by a volley of warning caws from Oberon. And with that, the wind surged. I was born into the air, into the singing wind. Who was playing piano up here on Signal Hill? It was my mother's favorite piece, by the man whose lover, she'd told me, had been unafraid to dress in men's clothing. A funeral march. Why was my mother so enamored of death? A great flashing brightness flared around the edges of my vision, stretching from ground to sky with jagged flaring edges, bright as the sun. It was as if flames of every color had stabbed down from heaven and into my eyes. Inside the shining, they danced and yammered. The sparkling crenellation shook and shimmered like a shower of falling stars. They fell into blackness, a great nothing straight ahead of me, a black blank tunnel. Floating in the abyss, not see her face, but I knew it was her. It was my mother. She sat in the abyss, rocking her body back and forth. They laughed. The cord around my wrist tightened until I thought my hand would pinch off. I could not tell how high off the ground I was. I couldn't see, nor could I hear, for there was a great roaring in my ears. I could be over the sea or mere inches from the ground. A thin and threading sound as of a baby crying turned the marrow of my bones to ice. Then a great shrieking crowd cried out, falling from the kite, jagged stars into the chasm. Through the glitter and mayhem, tore a big black-feathered figure. The sparkling at the periphery of my vision gave one last flare like fireworks dispersing outward. The black chasm sucked away like water going down a drain, and with it the pale blue ghostly image of my mother. No, I cried. The laughter faded in. Suspended up in the air, wrist entangled, arm in agony. Above me the kite wrenched and yawed. I was a rag doll in the jaws of a black dog, helplessly jerking up and down. The kite, with me tangled, was being pulled toward the cliff edge by the inexorable winds. Below me the men shouted and heaved, trying to get the kite back to earth. Dig in your scrapers, the tall man cried, but it was futile. We were all as one being pulled toward the edge. They were hanging on to the kite to save me. Terror surged through me. I had to let go, lest everyone die for my sake, but I was trapped. I yelled into the wind, let me go. But the men below hung on, still getting dragged toward the cliff. Gah, cut it, cut the cord. Oberon circled my head. Swinging from my arm, the world whirling, I shut my eyes tight, feeling in my pocket. There it was, the pocket knife my father had given me. I managed to get it out. How would I open it? I clenched my front teeth over the exposed spine, and the blade popped open, wrenching my teeth. My mouth tasted of metal and blood. The cliff edge was so close, so close now. I cut the cord. With a spring, the fibers unraveled under my blade and spun away. I fell like a stone. Okay, lovely. Um now, I believe what I was hearing you speak about it way back last December, um, you were mentioning like the prominence, both of the story of superstition and, and ghosts, but also how as you've gotten older, you've become a bit more superstitious yourself. So <laughs> if there's anything you can uh, add to that there yourself. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so my mother, you know, I think 
people, some people might say she was someone who had second sight. Mm-hmm. She could see things, uh, sense things. Um, she saw ghosts in the house. I, I grew up in this house like door. My house was built by my great, great grandfather only later. Obviously, I was not born. You know, I wasn't a child in 1901. I'm not that old. So but uh, the house I grew up in, you know, was a family home, an ancestral pile, if you will. And my mom coming from southern Ontario, she frequently saw ghosts and sometimes she would describe them. And my aunt Jan, my dad's older sister, who didn't have a lot of patience for that. My mom, really, they didn't really get along. But she was very matter of fact about my mother's visions and she would go oh that sounds like emma and that, that must be emma or oh that that sounds like you know great grandfather or she would like say these things mm. and uh the only time i've ever actually seen a ghost well, i saw three and it's actually it's in the book and so i just say this the true stuff in the book is probably the stuff that doesn't sound true but i was holding my mother's hand and i wonder mm. some people say if if you hold the hand of someone with second sight you can sometimes see what they see that's the only time i've seen a ghost and i saw these three ladies they sort of came through the wall and they'd seemed very animated. You couldn't hear them. And they were talking away, talking away. He's kind of floating. And then they just went right out through the wall and outside and disappeared. And my mom looked at me and she said, did you see that? And I said, yes. And she's like, oh, yeah. She'd seen them before. Mm-hmm. So that was spooky. Um, And I, I didn't grow up. It wasn't a happy time for me in the house. I never felt like if the ghosts were there, they didn't like me very much, I guess, was my feeling. Um, But I guess I... I didn't know what to think about my mom seeing things. You know, she was a stranger in the house, right? Like she was the foreigner. And I feel bad now when I look back, you know, uh, and I, I think I kind of, you know, went along with, you know, I mean, I was where I was. I was growing up in Newfoundland with Newfoundland family and she stood out. Um, uh, I know I've subsequently met other people who see things and who sense who sense things. And some of them are from cultures that support that kind of stuff. Like they actually still have a living practice around that knowledge keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely uh, have no, there's no part of me that thinks, oh, that's not true. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing those things. And I would say, I don't see things, but I sometimes scent have feelings. <laughs> okay. I had some feelings at the closing night of Sarah's show mm. last night. Mm. I felt some presences there. Very, very benevolent. Not everything good. She talks on the show about breaking a curse. Yes. And I I absolutely have every amount of time for that kind of stuff. And I mm. again, I feel like it's hiding in plain sight in our culture, but it's there. And like I said, every other culture kind of people see stuff, usually in liminal spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the fairy lore back home, it's usually in a berry patch or when you're out hunting where you sort of know the terrain, but it's not your everyday terrain. And that's where mm-hmm. things happen. And there's things you have to do to appease them, you know, these spirits or whatever, things you do that might piss them off. So don't do those things. So, you know, I, I've I've met people from around the world who share these stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite um, matter of fact, honestly. Okay. So I guess as I get older, I just hear more and more of those stories. And I think, well, who are we to say there's this whole level of experience that we think we're qualified to judge? We think we know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just have no time for that. Right. And it's, am I correct in saying second sight is like a, a sort of equivalent to sixth sense kind of? Sort I of think so. Yeah. You know, and some, some mm. people, you know, they can tell fortunes maybe, or they, 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 they can, or they think they can. I mean, there's charlatans out there, obviously. I mean, there are people who fake this stuff, but mm. yeah, you know, uh, reading the past, seeing spirits, talking to the dead, um, Sensing beings that aren't have nothing to do with us. They're not human. You know, like they're people who see little people. Like I said, my father had had three experiences he talked about. Uh, 
so yeah, I just, I guess I, I guess I just, uh, I wouldn't even call it willing suspension of disbelief. It's, it's, it's just, I'm just like, we're not qualified you know, to say there's this whole level of experience that we think we know everything about. Mm-hmm. And I think some of these we people stories, you know, Newfoundland anyway, and, and maybe uh, generally in North America are being superseded by alien st- stories, you know, like uh, yeah, yeah. there's some similarities in, in type. Yeah. I think folklorists, mm-hmm. I'd like to see a, a rigorous folkloric study of, of uh, alien encounter stories i bet there's some similarities to how the stories are told uh anyway as a writer as somebody who loves narrative at the very least i i i am deeply appreciative of these stories as stories and as a narrative type mm-hmm. um and they obviously serve an important function and at the very least we could say they serve an important cultural and psychological function i'm just going to move on slightly to um i was quite interested in what you were saying about um perhaps for reasons that we were discussing in the last question, but uh, that there's really a rich history of literature in Newfoundland. And you have said to yourself, point blank, that you love Lisa Moore. So I'm just, yes. is there anything you can say why you love Lisa Moore? Oh, well, I mean, she's an amazing person, but um, mm. I mean, I don't know her well personally, but uh, she's just lovely. Uh, no, her writing is so uh, vivid, strong, smart, unflinching, the rhythm in it, uh, like her use of language, um, the St. John's that she writes about often is one I really recognize. Uh, it was it's a kind of writing that I think I was really hungry for growing up and, and, and something that I think I was trying to do with my first novel. And I don't know if I succeeded, but because uh, um, at the time when I was writing that first novel, there wasn't writing like that about Newfoundland. It seemed mostly historical mm-hmm. and kind of nostalgic and a bit misty. Not Not that it was bad. It just... There was very much the historic Newfoundland, and I, I wasn't seeing the Newfoundland I'd grown up with and mm-hmm. the people I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, so I was just really excited when I started reading Lisa's work, uh, Joel Hines, uh, you know, people like that who were who were starting to write uh, a St. John's I recognized. <laughs> I'll okay. just say that. All right. But yeah, no, Lisa's writing is just incandescent. I mean, it's 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 she's so good. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have so many good writers like Newfoundland just is like a, talk about hitting above it, its weight, you know. Oh, and, definitely. And good yes. writers. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's insane how many mm-hmm. good writers are coming out of there. Right. Yeah. And and uh, one of well, not a little while ago, but still not too long ago. And you're you said you were Facebook friends with him, Wayne Johnston. Yes. And my dad did love Colony of Unrequited Dreams, but. I was getting a message that you sort of, um, we're not, we're not mean to dump on Wayne himself, but just maybe the work it's uh, a bit. You said you had some criticisms of that work. And I was just curious what, what your criticisms of that work are. Quite similar to many Newfoundlanders criticisms of the work. I am certainly not. Allowed. So, so anyway, okay. yeah, no, I, I mean, he's an incredible writer. I love his work again. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's wonderful. And he, he uh, has said actually he needed to leave home to write about it. He's quite clear on that front. So I can, mm-hmm. I'm like, thank you. I'm not the only one, but, um, uh, no, he's a great writer and no question. Uh, but no, my, my issues with Colony, uh, I had sort of two issues with it. One, like I said, I'm not the only Newfoundlander who says this criticism. Mm. Uh, like there's some geographical realities that he just ignores and that bugs me. And I, I think I'm just like a bit of a stickler for some stuff and maybe it's unnecessary. You know, maybe mm. I'm tying myself down to, to realities and who cares? 
you know, who's the greater writer, me or Wayne Johnson? I don't think there's any argument, you know, that he's a better, the better writer. Uh, and mm-hmm. but it just really bugs me when he has people walking on pack ice on this off the South Coast. And it's like, there's no pack ice on the South Coast. And, you know, and just there's like a lookout, like somebody's supposed to be up on Southside Hills where I grew up. Uh, and there's a view that just doesn't exist. And then there's roads that are supposed to be intersecting in St. John's that don't intersect. It's just stuff like that. It just bugs me. Mm. Uh, uh, it's like, come on. Um, and but does it matter to anybody else? No. If you're not from Newfoundland, you probably don't care. But again, that bugs me, too. You know, right. Uh, but it, what would he say about that? He probably doesn't care. He's like, whatever. I wrote the book. It's a good book. It doesn't matter. These details don't 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 change the book. The other issue with that book have to do with Joey Smallwood and then Fielding, the character of Fielding. Now, Fielding is just universally admired and I love her. I'm, I'm definitely one of those people uh, mm-hmm. like what a great character and you just adore her. Um, and Joey Smallwood. Now, I'd have to read the book again. It's been a few years since I've read it. But I feel like the way he comes off in the book and Fielding is an invented character. She's not a real yeah, character. Yeah, no, Where Smallwood no. is, of course, an historical figure uh, who, mm-hmm. who more or less, you know, uh, he was our first uh, premier when we joined Canada. And he very much was such a proponent of, of, of Newfoundland joining Canada to a to an almost maniacal degree um, and put a stamp on it. That's for sure. But um a lot of a lot of Joey's legacies are still. Oh my God, we're still living with Churchill Falls. We didn't sign on for the Indian Act when we joined because no. oh, the indigenous people of Newfoundland were dead apparently to be authentic. Oh gosh, extinct. You know, and 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 we were all told that was it was very terrible, and we were very sad and felt very guilty. But it's really too bad. Thus, ignoring the Mi'kmaq, the Innu, and the Inuit. Right. So mm-hmm. so messy land claims. Right. Don't want to deal with those. So that's pretty poor. Uh, but the the character of Joey, I mean, I remember Joey. And if anything, he was manic. Like he was he was just on all the time. And I felt like the character of Joey, because Fielding needed a foil, because Fielding is such a delight, she needed a foil. So then I felt like the character of Joey in the book, he's like this depressive, miserable, interned, kind of neurotic. I was just like, I don't know. The Joey I saw was like this. He was massive. He was a he, his personality was massive. Like he just mm-hmm. had energy to burn. So I it bugged me. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. as a sidebar, I would say, and 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 again, Wayne Johnson can just you know laugh at me. Obviously, there's no no reason for him to worry about what mm. I think about anything. But um, and it's not only Wayne who does this. There are other male writers who write historical female characters who are apparently unfettered by any. Cultural considerations when it comes to sexuality, they just it, and it, it really smacks to me of a kind of fantasy. We would all love to believe in these women who have zero guilt and none of the none of the cultural and, and historical pressures apply to them. They're somehow just completely without any guilt, uh, ambivalence. Uh, they're not fucked up at all. They're just mm. like, let's have sex. You know, and I'm just like, ah, oh, it really bugs me as a woman because I just, I just, as a woman born, you know, somebody born and raised as a woman and, and even in our society in the, in the 20th century, there's a tremendous burden of guilt, misery, body hatred, self-hatred, suspicion of yourself as a woman, of all women as women, like, you know, difficulty relating to men, you know, ta- it's a tangle. It's a tangle. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me that 100 years ago or, you know, 50 years ago or whatever, it was somehow, you know, easy for these women. They could just ignore all social mores of the time right right and, so those yeah. are the problems i have with that book okay so i alternated gotcha. i alternately delighted in it and then mm-hmm. it threw it across the room and then i'd pick it up and read more and then i'd throw <laughs> it across the room oh. uh and uh uh it's great he got a reaction <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah well he's a great writer he's a great writer there's no yes question. Uh, i mean and 
Joey was what premier for my historical facts are correct, something like twenty two years or something like I that. I can't remember so, the exact, but yeah, it was a very long time. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Um and he went from quite left leaning, like quite socialist, to yes. not at uh, all. Yes, yeah. yes. A little a little more like uh, some of the uh historic the political tradition in uh another Atlantic province, New Brunswick, perhaps. True yeah. enough. True yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um so, uh, of course, another element of your artistic life on November 24th to December 3rd, you're performing Anxiety at Theatre yes. on King. Yes. And just about Theatre on King itself. So quoting Sarah directly, she loves Theatre on King because it's a place where you can make mistakes. Beauty and the Beast down the road, but and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's just, you know, there's there's that sort of special kind of way you can be really inventive and imaginative at Theatre on King. So. I don't know if you you have anything to add to that sort of thinking of Theatre on King itself. Yeah. Since you have a long history. Mm. I do. Yeah. Well, full disclosure, right? My partner, Ryan Kerr, runs it. So obviously yes. I'm slightly prejudiced. Uh, well, that's OK. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree with Sarah. Like you can't really make good art if if you can't tr- risk failure. Mm hmm. And and that's a terrifying thing to do. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I'm. My show is aptly named. I'm very anxious about it. I, I, I do get very worried about, I mean, I've done quite a few one person shows and they're, they're terrible. I don't know why I keep doing them. They're just exhausting. They're so hard. Mm-hmm. They're tremendously stressful uh, to try to pull off. Uh, but yeah, there's obviously something about the form. I really, I like going to see one person shows mm-hmm. uh, other people's. Um, but yeah, no, the theater on King, because it's cheap. You know, there's so that's one of the reasons like you're not breaking the bank to try to rent the place. I mean, like like if you're you know, if 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 it's expensive, you have to you have to get huge numbers of audiences in to see your work. Well, you're not going to do something really out there that people aren't even sure if it's art. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to try to do something that people are going to come to. And so when you have a smaller space that that isn't expensive, you can try to do something that maybe very few people might come to. And that that's the only way we're going to innovate. That's the only way we're going to challenge ourselves and keep ourselves interested in our own work. Um, you know, I, I, I have no problem with people putting on popular shows, obviously. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare was extremely popular. I'm a big Shakespeare fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, at the same time, if you don't have a place to experiment, uh, the art form is moribund. Why do we, why do we bother? Mm-hmm. Other than as a kind of recreation keeps us off the streets, I suppose. But that's right. not why I do performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing about the theater is that, uh, it's this might sound strange, but like when you're developing your own work, you know, uh, it's a different kind of thing than just putting on a, a show that already exists. So the the tech is right there in the same on the same tiny room. We're all there together. Whereas in a in a traditional theater, you either have to be talking like uh, either the tech booth has to move itself down or you're talking on a walkie talkie or you're yelling up over the seats, you know, uh this is like they can just go over or like Ryan can just get on a, a ladder or Shannon or somebody just get a ladder and change a light done. We're done there. It's good. You know, so the smallness of it also means that we can make changes quickly uh, and experiment again. It, it, it So you're not afraid. Oh, we'd have to get the genie out and go up to the top of the grid to change that light. It's going to be really hard. And it's Nyatsi house. So it has to be somebody who's unionized and has their papers. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it's all like, we're, we're just in there. We're just doing it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, then it leads to this collaborative approach, which is just my bread and butter. I just love it. I love collaborating. Theater is collaborative, even any kind of theater. 
is collaborative mm-hmm. by nature. But when you're doing devised theater, if you want to call it that, or, you know, something you're building from the ground up. Yeah. It's just such a collaborative art form and um, working in a small space like that, you know, sure. You miss some things. You can't pack in the big audiences. There's some kinds of say court by, you know, the dancer, uh, you know, started actually as a dancer. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd call myself a dancer, but I had like extensive dance training and that was sort of my first uh, place in performance. And, uh, you know, so there's certain kinds of choreography you just can't do because you don't have those big spaces, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it does limit things that way. Uh, but uh, for me, the benefits outweigh the uh, the downsides of the right. smallness. And I love the intimacy with the audience. Like like when, you, you know, you talk about Sarah's mm-hmm. show and say my own show, very much direct address. Ryan's show, Ryan's got a show coming up called Unexploded yeah. Ordinance. Mm-hmm. Uh, direct address to the audience. You're right there uh, in the room together. And I I love it. <laughs> right. It's beyond love, you know. I think maybe I've been sort of trying to piece through this for myself. So, like, people, some people get annoyed by the idea of some people having a calling, and it does. It, it sounds elitist, and it has been used in a very elitist way, a very off-putting way for a long time. But, like, the closest I can come to it is this: if we think of our lives, maybe you could think of our your life as like a house with rooms in it, and you know, if you've got a job. Uh, most of us will have a little sign outside the door. Well, I don't want my friendships to be affected by my job. And I don't want my love life to be affected by my job, my sex life. I don't want my leisure time. I don't want my family to be affected by my job. But if it's a, if you start finding that, in fact, the work is what you start, you start, it, it's in everything because you've invited it in. And then you find like all those different rooms that you thought were different rooms. You see them differently because you invited the work in and it makes them better. And in fact, your life isn't what happens outside of it. Your life is the work. It's all tangled up. And I don't mean I don't want a day off. I do. I need them, obviously. But but I guess I feel like that kind of collaborative work is my, that's my jam. I just, uh, that's where I feel very alive. And, and writing, too. Uh, I need both somehow. But it's where I feel, yeah, very alive and very lively in all my relationships and all my, the way I look at the world is completely informed by that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not, not me meaning to bring up uh, uh, some terrible uh, moments, I'm sure, from the past year or two. But uh, I remember you saying during COVID, I believe you, like with regards to at least your theater side of yourself, you're kind of in a state of grief for obvious reasons. Um, mm. And uh, if uh, granted, you know, the pandemic is still alive and well, but uh, have you felt sort of a bit of a liberation this year in a healthy way, uh, certainly with this up this fall season? Yeah, we have a very, very exciting and, and intense season coming up. Oh, for sure. Just seeing mm-hmm. people. I mean, you can't do theater without an audience. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not because of grandstanding. It's not that. It's, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's an intimacy. It's a really... Yes. It takes work, like in a good way. It's play. It's play. It's work play. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. No, it's been great. I would say though, and I mean, I'm certainly not the only uh, person saying this, and the performing arts is certainly not the only sector saying this. That the effects of the pandemic are are uh, wild and uh, ongoing and long term, and and I think have made some changes that that may in fact be permanent. We don't know yet, um, but certainly, you know we still don't know how this is going to pan out. And uh, I have some deep concerns about all that. Mm. Um, But yeah, being able to welcome people in, I mean, you know, Sarah's show, for example, 
uh, Ryan and I got COVID. We missed uh, we missed a week of rehearsal with Sarah. We have mm-hmm. no idea where we got it. Like we we are so careful, mm-hmm. and uh, we went to and from Germany. I had this short story that was animated as a virtual reality performance in a in a in a multi arts festival in in Weimar Germany. Right, and I we saw, went to about that. Yeah. yeah, we went to and from Germany on a packed yeah. air. I packed airplanes. We did public mm-hmm. transportation. We met this entire cast and crew of this giant you know, uh, play, mm-hmm. uh, and we did not get COVID. We had mm-hmm. to come back home to Peterborough and got it from, we don't know where, you know? And, and so I'm like, despite Doug Ford's best efforts, we were able to put on Sarah's Sarah show, <laughs> you know, like, like what's going on right now. So anyway, it's tough. And, and, and we do, uh, that's why we have the mask policy for the audiences, uh, mm-hmm. at the theater. Um, and we're going to keep that up because we don't want audiences putting themselves at risk. Yeah. coming to the space and and we know that these gatherings are are ways to we know how viruses work science it's science and mm-hmm. so yeah the audiences are masked there which which uh we some people are like eh, about it but most people honestly are very happy to be wearing masks and 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 in fact there are several people have said to us this is the only place i come to because i know everyone's going to be masked so right. uh yeah so that that's going on as well you know the whole pandemic thing but yeah, for sure. The second we were able to start welcoming people back into the space, uh, I felt my heart lighten. It was so great. Well, that's good. Now on to, on to anxiety itself. So, um, it's basically kind of in a way a retelling of Beowulf. So is, is that something, where, where did that idea come from? I, guess? <laughs> I, I'm trying to think going back in the midst of time. It was definitely during lockdown. Mm hmm. I, uh, I mean, Beowulf's one of those things, you know, is it like remembrance of things past, you know, the Proust book, like, like one of those things you think, oh, someday I'm going to read that, you know, um, and, uh, or you do read it. And I mean, I've read excerpts of Beowulf and I've seen some of the movie adaptations of Beowulf over my lifetime. Um, I've always been really interested in Norse culture. Actually, my, my parents knew, uh, the Ingstads who, who discovered the couple, the Norwegian couple who discovered Lansom Meadow. Which right. is the Viking settlement in on Northern Peninsula in, in Newfoundland, and mm-hmm. uh, I remember them. They they would come visit, and like my parents, they, the 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 wife was quite a bit younger than the the husband, and I don't know. I just thought they were very glamorous. These Norwegians, they were very like super exciting, you know. And mm-hmm. he was a big adventurer. Anyway, very cool. And I remember them all talking, you know, and hearing them all talk about uh, Viking culture and the the North Atlantic, you know, in Newfoundland is some part of this sort of cod north atlantic uh you know scandinavian slash whatever mm-hmm. else you'd call it culture and that just stuck with me um and so during one of the lo- the first lockdown i think i thought well why don't i try to read beowulf right <laughs> and then it was so sad like i was like I, I don't know i thought i would magically be able to read it like and mm-hmm. I, no old english is so our language has changed so much and then i was like i don't know anything about the english language harry and both my parents english professors i've written like i've had six novels published mm-hmm. i don't know a damn thing about my own language and and then you know uh then this interesting thing happened too where i and kind of horrible but but interesting so of course we're while there we are in lockdown and we're all watching like you know the right wing white supremacist kind of stuff starting to really mm-hmm. stir up and Trump of course already a, a problem there he is and then I found when I would try to research anything about Beowulf online I'd be about literally two or three clicks away from white, white supremacist websites every time and I'm not like the smartest person online but I'm not an idiot I really I wasn't looking for it I didn't want that stuff mm-hmm. and it's there anytime you try to look up Norse heritage or Celtic heritage of any kind 
that real estate's been co-opted by those those people. And uh, and they're very anxious about their own disappearance, right? Like this replacement theory yes, stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, it's very dark, right? It's not not mm. good. And uh, uh, and Beowulf itself is imbued with this very. Uh, it's about disappearance. I mean, the Geats. Nobody's heard of them. That's who. Mm-hmm. That's who the Beowulf's people were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Swedish people have heard of the Geats. I, I, until quite recently, Swedes, instead of saying we're descended from Vikings, they said we are descended from the Geats because mm-hmm. they were these warrior people. Uh, I hadn't heard of them until I researched Beowulf. And then there's a whole like all these side stories in Beowulf, and one of them is this whole, often known as the Lay of the Last Survivor. It is so sad and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um. So I just started thinking it's all related. It's all related. And this is kind of partly how my brain works. So this is my anxiety about anxiety is whether the irritating way my brain has of like connecting everything all the time. How do I, how do I convey that in an hour long show that isn't just manic, you know, like how do I, (laughs) anyway, I don't know, (laughs) but I have outside eyes and, and they'll help me uh, do it. But uh, part of what I do do in it is is I strip Beowulf of the side stories, which was very painful for me to do because I love the side stories. Because, again, that's how my brain works. Uh, zoom, zoom, zoom. So yeah. kind of strip it away. And so I tell the sort of bare bones of the actual Beowulf story and I animate it and the monsters and uh, with help from some of the translations I've read and some of the scholarly work I've read about it, sort of reimagining Grendel's mother. She doesn't have a name. Uh, she's Grendel's mom in in the in the epic and then also the dragon in my version is 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 female which at least one translation has has done as well uh so i just sort of stole that idea because i just thought it was too good um and exploring shame so shame uh as i'm exploring it because it's something i really don't want to explore i thought anxiety was what i didn't want to explore anxiety is easy anxiety we all i mean I can, I'm anxious, I'm anxious now. I'm anxious all the time. I don't have a hard time exploring it. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of my everyday, but the uh, shame, whoa, that's a really hard one. And shame, uh, there are many social theorists and social workers and people who work with prison populations and so on. Uh, people who theorize what starts war. Uh, shame is a motivator of so much violence. Uh, maybe all violence. So okay. I'm like, this is really important. And I had an experience, uh, this is after I was working on this piece, but when Jagmeet Singh came to Peterborough mm-hmm. and I, I happened to be walking by the NDP office, I, I, you know, I am an NDP. I said, why am I saying it like this? I am an NDP or uh, I'm, terrible. I'm saying it like that, but I am. <laughs> so I was walking by and I see my friend, Bill Templeman and, you know, he's, he's tall yes. fellow, uh, yeah. but he's getting on in life. And, uh, anyway, there was holding a big sign and a uh, big NDP sign. And what he was doing, there were all these like, you know, MAGA people, like QAnon people, you know, the, the Peter mm-hmm. Burgers, you know, all those people, yeah. the anti-vaxxers, they were all screaming and yelling stuff. And Jagmeet Singh had not yet arrived, but so Bill was heroically holding this giant sign with his very beautiful long arms, like just basically trying to stop them from storming and banging the glass of the NDP, uh, on George street of the office where it was at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I thought, oh, poor Bill. So I stood with him and I took the other side of the sign. And for two hours, we stood there and Jagmeet finally came. And but for two hours, these people screamed and yelled racist stuff, uh, crazy conspiracy stuff, uh, got right in our faces. Of course, you know, Bill and I are wearing our masks, but they're screaming at us. And I was like, oh, my God, I hope I don't get COVID. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. just like this. And then out of just sheer desperation, both boredom and also fear, I think I started trying to talk to them and chatted with a few of them. Some of them would talk to me. Uh, and I guess part of it was like, like I said, literally, I was really bored at being screamed, at, like having abuse screamed at me. And mm-hmm. and uh, part of it was like, I just still think like, 
and this is what my piece is based on, that there is an anxiety and a shame that all human beings that, you know, if you stab me, do I not bleed? You know, like we, like we have this. So I'm like, okay, let's talk. And I mean, some of them, I just couldn't even get anywhere, but, but, uh, there was at least one or two of them that I was like, we agree on everything that's wrong with Peterborough. We just completely disagree about why. And, uh, they're very worried about the world economic forum, for example. I mean, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. I don't have concerns, but I, you know, it's crazy. Anyway, I don't need to, uh, I won't try to explain that. I I don't know if I can, but that also informed the, the piece for me, uh, because of that. Like, I feel like it's important that, that I find these points of connection with the MAGA movement and the, um, as a white person, you know, or somebody who supposedly, you know, whatever race is invented. We know that it's not, not really real genetically, but uh, sure is real in terms of politics and, and how things are playing out now. Um, I feel like I have a responsibility, you know, to uh, with my white privilege to kind of look into my own uh, complicity, the complicity of my language. How does my language work? How does colonization work? Uh, and it's relation is hand in hand with language. And, you know, I love the English language, but I also am so aware that it's been a huge it still is a colonizing force in the world. So it's all related. We did a workshop, believe it or not, workshop production that the audience was quite positive about. So possibly this is going to work. But uh, uh, I'm I'm both excited and, of course, nervous about an audience coming. And <laughs> will it work? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out. Oh. So that's how Beowulf kind of also links to the contemporary situation. Oh, okay, and, that is. And my own uh... love of the English language and my father being a lexicographer, you know, the Dictionary of Newfoundland English, growing up with quite old English words in Newfoundland. People still use some old forms. Um, and I, I'm still finding out sometimes I'll say something and then my friends here will be like, what, what, what's that? And I'm like, Oh, you don't use that word to you. And they're like, no, <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm still learning. <laughs> I've lived here since I was, you know, a youngster. Yes. Yeah. No, I, well, that that's quite a, that's quite a fascinating connection. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good, important point with shame and anxiety. I think, anxiety is kind of something that uh is accepted that everyone goes through like uh uh admittedly my daughter has convinced me over the years to become a mini taylor swifty fan and even she sings about anxiety but so you know it's kind of that means it's kind of like a universally accepted thing but uh shame yes uh like among many trillions of examples like it's one reason why when our various great social agencies in the city try and make a count of homelessness, it's more difficult than you think because there's a lot of people who like are sleeping in their car or whatever. Don't want to, don't want to say they're homeless for understandable reasons. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, we would rather feel anything than shame. Yeah. You know, me included. I mean, it is the worst feeling on earth. And uh, again, I can't vouch for this a hundred percent, but some of the, some of the, reading I've done about it, that there's a universal human physical, like, like a downturned head to one side, slumped, mm-hmm. slumped, but tense eyes down, uh, like uh, often hands crossed in front of you. So mm-hmm. it's like, this is, this is a universal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should feel shame at times. Yes. It's a, it's a signal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there are people who don't feel it and they are not good people. The people mm-hmm. who don't feel shame, they're the, they're the bad people. They're the mm-hmm. ones making all this bad shit happen. And they're also the people that I think they, I think some of the white supremacist stuff is just 
look at him. He said it. He said that. Yeah, I don't have to feel ashamed either. Like there's a certain high maybe that you can experience, like the outrageousness of what some of these people say is attractive because we'd rather we'd rather hate people than feel shame. Mm-hmm. It's much easier. It's much, way much. Yeah, way easier, especially way easier. I've done thing. it. We've all done it. Yeah. We've all flipped into anger. Mm-hmm. When someone has, we, we perceive someone as having shamed us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, and, or we withdraw or there's, there's apparently four pop quiz, you know, four different uh, reactions to shame anyway, stuff right. like this. So we'll see. I don't think my show will solve all these problems. Uh, but I, I do feel that already for me, exploring Beowulf, my own language, uh, and the connections that has made for me has changed me. It's changed how I see what's happening in the world politically right now. It's changed how I see my language and, and my everyday interactions because language shapes thought. Okay. And another element of the play, am I correct in saying, is it meant to be in some ways a bit of a tribute or at least an acknowledgement of your father? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've not wanted to make work about my father ever. Um, I've avoided it. And, mm-hmm. uh, I someday I'd really like to talk to uh, children of famous men, you know, like I dad's not famous here. And I mean, he's less known now, you know, as people mm-hmm. die off, you know, uh, the culling of the herd continues. But like I said earlier in the interview, when I was growing up, I was George Story's daughter and it was it was just, you know, uh, inescapable. And I was also very disappointing. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I would always feel like apologizing. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry. The great man is my father and I am the off, you know, one of the offspring. Sorry. And uh, and then when he died, it was, uh, you know, um there was a lot of mourning. It was a cultural loss, Mm. you know? So there was a way in which my own personal grief to me, I'm not going to speak for my brothers, but felt like it had to happen elsewhere somehow. Mm. Uh, Not that I didn't express grief. I did, but I, I mean, I was also quite young. I was 25 when dad died. And um, so there's a bit of that. Uh, I think maybe that's why I'm fascinated by Beowulf, like a hero. You know, mm. dad was very much a kind of cultural hero for a lot of people. Mm. And uh, and for me, you know, I'm very proud of his work. Um, and I think the other reality is he was 42 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So I was 11 when he was the age I am now. I can remember my father being this age. Mm. And I can relate to some of him, his proclivities a lot better now than when I was a young person, you know, because because you change as you there's you know, some some of the factors of what irritate young people about middle aged people is just age. Like mm. I remember being so irritated by certain affectations that my mom or my dad had. And now I'm like, oh, right. They couldn't see things that were close mm-hmm. or you know, they took them a little longer to make up their mind about something or they were sore. So they didn't want to bend over and pick that thing up or, you know, like I was a heartless. I think, you know, until you've gone through it, you don't, you don't know what it's like to be older, you know? And so now I'm like, Oh yeah. And also that, 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 uh, uh, passion he had for his work. Mm -hmm. I just relate to it so much. And, and at the time, of course it was, I I accepted it completely. I mean, there was never a moment when I, I was like, come on, pay attention to me. I think there was one time I made him, I had to have an operation on my foot and he had something he was going to drive to. There was only one car in the house and, uh, in the household and and he said well you can just walk home from the surgery i said 
And I was like 14 or 15. I was like, I'm getting surgery on my foot. I can't walk. Like I just like I demanded a, a ride home and, and, and he canceled whatever it was and, and did pick me up from the surgery. You know, I, and that's one of the few times I can remember demanding that he put work aside. Um, and I can really relate to his passion for work now. You know, mm-hmm. luckily, I have no offspring to, uh, you know, neglect for my work. Um because I, you know, I wouldn't want to, I don't know what I would do. I just wouldn't get as much done, I suppose. It's fine. And I yeah. think when you have kids, like my friends who have children, it just informs your work in a different way. You know, yeah. it's just more grist for the mill. But it certainly changes things, right? How do, how do you Def- balance all oh, that stuff? It definitely. It's definitely a, an issue of balance for a, for at least a number of years. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Has to be. Has to be. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Um, Family's very important to me. Family's very important to me. And they, mm-hmm. they take up a, a lot of my energy and time for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't regret it for one moment, you know, mm-hmm. but having kids is a whole other ball game that I just, yeah, my hat is always off to all the parents, you know, like <laughs> good for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always very delighted when good people have children because we know the crappy people have children, you know, yes, Trump has yes. children. Yeah. They, Ford yes. has children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's quite a few. Um, yeah. now is there anything for, uh, ticket holders to the show such as myself is there anything you think other important details we should know coming in without giving away too much hmm. no i don't think so okay. uh no it's not like it's not like it shouldn't be upsetting to people i don't know mm-hmm. like uh i found it very hard to judge my own work and especially because this one hasn't really you know we haven't done it yet um mm-hmm. no i think i think it's going to be pretty pretty accessible weirdly mm-hmm. i would say like like i mean if you know beowulf then you know more than i do about it okay. like if you're if you're an old english scholar you know way more than i do about it and Definitely if you don't <laughs> you don't have to know about it to to yeah. appreciate the show it's a great story i mean beowulf's mm-hmm. a terrific superhero story monster story i mean it's really great and it's fun and the stuff about uh anxiety shame uh current politics the rise of white supremacy mm-hmm. is not the uh, we don't dwell in there. That's not where the show, that's not the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess I would say the only thing I would say is we're, we're attempting to provide a relaxed performance. So, so there's one, I've never done that before. So there's, there's a matinee and uh, not to say that, you know, just, just anybody could come to it, but it's something we're working to develop. So it just means people who might feel for whatever reason uh, they're on the spectrum or they have, you know, uh, Whatever, whatever reason, they might not feel comfortable coming to a normal theater performance where there's lights flashing and and loud mm-hmm. noises and you're not allowed to leave if you feel like you need to leave. So we're doing at least one performance like that. And but even an ordinary performance, it's the kind of thing because it's direct address. It'd be all right if somebody had to leave. It wouldn't, you know, throw mm-hmm. everything off. So I guess that's the only thing I'd say is like, come and, you know, be prepared to, I don't know, go on a little ride. It takes like, you know, goes through this fantasy world in a sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. sounds, sounds good to me. Now, another important, uh, element of you that you brought up earlier is, uh, dance. Mm. And if I'm correct, you've, uh, you've loved dance since you were taking ballet at four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I guess I'd have to say like everything, you've done a lot of things, everything from co-founding Peter Rose Dance Works to Hidden Anatomy that you, I saw you did earlier this year with Ben Dukian is, um, is it kind of uh, when it, you know, your many different multifaceted arts, art identities and trades, 
is it as sort of like is do you consider it kind of like your starting point or your default kind of dance? It's where I started. I mean, <laughs> I I was never really very good. Uh, like like I don't have the right body type mm-hmm. to do ballet, and that was pretty clear uh, pretty early. Uh, so I was kind of new. Hmm, you know, this probably isn't going to be what I end up doing. I mean, m- more diverse body types are 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 acceptable in the dance world now mm-hmm. than when I was growing up. But at the same time, I'm missing some very basic. Uh, it's called turnout. So like, there's certain things you just can't do. Like you can't get those wonderful pirouettes. Like it's just physics, right? Like mm-hmm. like if you if you can't have that 180 degree, you know, the legs splay out. Can't do it. Um, my bones just aren't right. But uh. I love it. And I think for me as a little kid and, and then still as an adult, like I have a lot of uh, energy uh, and uh, I experience things physically like pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. My mother was a musician and I studied piano for years to very little effect. And I, I one of the things I, I did learn was that I experience music through my body if I, I have to move to it. And mm-hmm. and I'm one of those irritating people that like I'm trying to sit still and but I'm, I'll be doing, you know, these little micro movements in my, my seat and try not to 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 move the seats next to me. Um, so it's how I experience almost everything. I think even intellectual knowledge probably is just through my body. So while I would say I'm at the reason I don't really like to call myself a dance artist is because I just have no technique and I don't go to class. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like the worst kind of person. I just like, oh. I'll do a movement based piece. Oh, I'm injuring myself. How weird, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it is the way I understand almost everything is through my body, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love it. I love watching good dance. I love uh, moving. And there are certain kinds of things. That, and I love language, obviously, like reading and writing was also the number one thing for me. Right. Still remains. Uh, and I find there are some things that are better suited to come across without words, you know, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's always a it's always a part of how I approach directing uh, other people. Um, I don't think you need dance training to be a movement based performer. You really don't. So. And no. uh, yeah, I, and I, 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 yeah, it's just all always there for me. It's always a way that I, I kind of come at things. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you brought up earlier your. Uh... Uh, your book, which I believe is from the late 2000s, like uh, Blasted, is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, and uh, now I think you kind of answered this already, but um, in that in that book, the main character is Ruby Jones, and is that yes. somewhat maybe just naturally and how the book turned out, but is that sort of an auto- autobiographical kind of piece in a way, even though it, it is fiction, it is fiction, but... Was Geographically, that, was that it's autobiographical, but that's kind of where it stops. I would say like, like me, Ruby grew up on the South side road and then moved to Toronto. And then, you know, it's a sort of culture shock and then goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. But other than the geography, pretty fictional. Ruby was one of those characters. And it took me like, I wrote, started that novel when I was kind of, I think I was about 27 when I started it, writing mm-hmm. it. And then it didn't get published. I mean, actually it's fairly normal. I found out I was ashamed. Speaking of shame, it took me about 10 years from writing the first draft to get it published, but apparently that's quite normal. Mm. But um, she was one of those characters, like she just seized me like with, she was very clear and very demanding. So I just kind of had to, I, I had to keep up basically <laughs> with her. Uh, so it's that experience. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to back away from it. Like I, 
obviously there has to be lots of me in it, but a lot of it just sort of came out like this is Ruby's story as she seemed, whatever that is, I have no idea. I don't know what happened. Mm. My second novel, the main character is Steven, and he's a much more um, backseat kind of person. Like he's, he, he has trouble getting people to pay attention to him. So, and he also had trouble getting me to pay attention to him. Like, say so he was more like, could you please get back to writing that book? And I'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, I'm I'm back. Whereas Ruby was like, ah! And I was like, okay, I'm writing. Jesus, you know. <laughs> I'm more like that. But geographically, yes, very much based on my own. I definitely like the apartment I had in Toronto when I lived there is Ruby's yes. apartment. Yeah, for sure. Okay. The weird neighbor, definitely. I had that neighbor. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like that thing. The, the true stuff is the really weird stuff. The stuff that people don't believe. It's like, yeah, no, that happened. Mm-hmm. It's true of everyone's life, honestly. Yes, no, I, I, yes, I've definitely heard that come up before, as well as uh, what you've been saying about, uh, like, uh, you know, learning more about where you came from when you leave it. I mean, mm. so it was kind of Joyce and Beckett. So, yes, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's I think a lot of people feel that way. Other people like dig dig in and like like, well, my father, for example, you know, like his life's work was home, mm-hmm. you know, he died in the house he was born in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was so passionate about Newfoundland. Now, he did. He went to uh, McGill, and then he he was a Rhodes Scholar. Went to Oxford, but always intended to come home. I don't mm-hmm. think he ever had a moment where he doubted that he would do that. Hmm. All right, and it's more of a kind of like a hot fire kind of question. Not as in it's uh, like uh, sensitive, but just uh, more like uh, just curious in a brief sort of way. Like um, you did uh, one time, I think twenty nineteen. I always say the title wrong, but uh, performances may be permanent. Mm. And I'm just kind of wondering, Ed, do you have some sort of adoration for Glenn Gould? Mm. I do. I mean, I, I was exploring that. It was that mostly about my mother. Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like anxiety mm-hmm. and, and performances are like, a, you know, me, me sort of thinking a bit about my relationship to my parents. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was exploring with that one. I just really loved the Goldberg variations. And when I left home, mm-hmm. I had this little cassette tape my my Aunt Margaret gave me mm-hmm. of his early recording that he made as a younger man. And yeah. he went back to the Goldberg variations as an older artist and recorded it again. Yeah. And they're both wonderful. And uh and I had that thing that I think a lot of people have where I thought, I understand Glenn Gould's recording of the Goldberg variations better than anyone. You know, and I just mm-hmm. really felt like, like I, I listened to it over and over on my Walkman. And, and it, it, it was a real refuge for me at a time when I was leaving home was I was a bit young, 16, maybe. Mm-hmm. Of course, at the time, I was more than ready. And I, I, I thought I was completely mature and ready to leave home. And now I, I look at my 16 year old acquaintances. and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I left home when I was that age. But anyway, here I am alive to this day. Um but I was quite homesick. I, it was a physical pain, actually, uh, which took me by surprise because I couldn't wait to get out of there. And then I was just been so homesick. I was, oh, it was awful. And I would listen to the Goldberg variations over and over on my Walkman. And then reading about Gould and then, you know, the stroke that he had. And I got really interested in strokes and the brain um, and language again, I guess, was in there. Uh mm. And I guess I was really riveted by this image of Gould. Apparently, when he was in his hospital bed, uh, he kept conducting with one hand, the hand that he could still use. He was there and, you know, the people around him speculated he was hearing music in his mind while he was mm-hmm. lying there. We'll, we'll never know. I, know. Uh, I hope so, for his sake. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a little bit me kind of poking fun at the young me and my, like, obsession with the Goldberg variations and this idea that I 
I really understood the music. My mom did tell me she was a pianist and she did say mm -hmm. she had a theory. She felt like she could calm me down by playing Bach when I was in the womb <laughs> and that other composers, I, I would get like, and then, but I would apparently really liked Bach and I've always really liked Bach and uh, thought it was just, I think, thought he was a great composer, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, a lot of that was really about me, the human body, the human brain. My mom died of cancer and it was a, it was a long and painful death. Mm -hmm. Um, and she'd been ill for a long time before that. Uh, and, and then when she finally got the, you know, um, you know, uh, diagnosis that it was terminal cancer and then that it took another year and a half. And, you know, so there was me, a lot of going back and forth to Newfoundland. My brothers both moved home uh, to be with her. And it was really obviously not, not, not a time one looks back on going, well, that was great. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a really difficult time, but I also had a lot of fun with my mom those mm -hmm. last, that last year and a half. And we actually bonded and connected in a way I never thought we would. Uh, so there's a lot of that in, in the piece. Um, and it's been a long time, you know, I've done some pieces since then, but this is my first really big show since, since then. That's, that's my own kind of autobiographical work. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've made yeah. other performances, but like I made one about Don Marquis called the mm -hmm. Dan Beavis Transmigration, but that's nothing to do with me. I just thought Don Marquis was an interesting figure and wanted to work with Brad and Ryan and pull that together and, and, a, and a band of musicians and, right, you know, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this is a this is a first thing in a really long time where I've been moved to kind of try to work something out. I think, you know, as I touched on with Urchin, mm -hmm. uh, and I would say this has been true of all my novels and uh, it's true of all my performance works. That my if this make I don't know if this makes sense even. It's like my artist self knows there's something I need to work through before my conscious mind knows it. So like okay. I, there was something I was working about out about my relationship to my mother, but I didn't mm -hmm. understand what it was until I got really, you know, face and eyes into performances maybe permanent. And like with Urchin, it wasn't until I was face and eyes into writing it that I was like, this is about me being genderqueer. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know that until I was really in it. And I think with anxiety, I, part of the reason maybe I, I don't know, but I feel like my answers to your questions are a bit circular and I'm not really able to go and answer them. I'm still trying to figure out, I mean, obviously, yes, partly my relationship to my father, but there's something I'm still figuring out, and that's why I'm doing the show. Okay. And the only reason it's worth doing as a show, I always tend to know right away when I get an idea, is it a novel or is this a performance? And I, I knew right away this was a performance. But, I, you know, it's just kind of a feeling, uh, an atmosphere of the work or something, or it needs me to embody it or something to figure out what it is, whereas a novel, I know I can write about it this one that needs to be embodied. So, you know, that's all I can say about it at this point. And I'll, I, there will come a point when I will think, I think I will understand what anxiety is for. But the only point in doing something like this or writing a novel is if you think that there's anyone else could care about this or this could be interesting or useful to other people. I mean, there's no reason to do it otherwise, just self-indulgence. So, so I trust uh, in the past that, you know, when you dive into, when artists dive into their own individual uh obsessions it that that's where the magic happens so i'm just hoping <laughs> going on faith here that there's going to be something in this exploration of of beowulf anxiety shame white supremacy etc that speaks to people not just me otherwise right. i'm sorry i will just apologize in advance sorry for wasting everyone's time but uh obviously there's something i need to work out yeah. and i'm hoping there will be something other people can connect to within it Oh, I, 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 I can, I don't see, I don't see that being the case, but, uh, 
Uh, and like I, similar to what I said to Sarah, if I was to sort of, uh, especially if I had to take everyone, every artistic um, performance you've done as kind of a life lesson, you've learned, you've definitely learned quite a bit then. And it's almost like an encyclopedia kind of amount. That's kind of what I'm saying to Sarah. But um, it, I guess I'll put this as similar to what you're saying about Peterborough uh, earlier is one of the sort of attractions about being like in a, tight knit, really small artistic community is this ability that perhaps you wouldn't have in Toronto or New York or whatever. Uh, this, this freedom of being like a multifaceted artist doing a bunch of things all at once, knowing the people who you're working with, you've known on them and they've been reliable for years and that kind of, and that sort of thing. Is that sort of, is that one thing you, is that one thing you've like loved about it through the years? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, th- well, there's twofold. There's the, the trusted compatriots, mm-hmm. but it's also that it's a small enough arts community that we're still really excited when new people come. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important. We need new people. We need new yes. people. <laughs> yeah. And, and so whereas in Toronto, nobody's excited when a new artist shows up. It's just some new fucking schmuck, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, okay. You know, uh, uh, like I remember going to see a younger friend's theater performance and they'd literally named their company yet another independent theater company, you know, like, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, only our friends come to see our shows and our parents and that's it. You know, it's really, it's hard, right? It's hard mm-hmm. in a city and, and I'm all for the challenge. It's just, I wasn't thriving. You know, I lived there for seven years and worked with a, a really amazing artist. But once I started making my own work, I realized I needed to be somewhere else. And I like to work with people from different disciplines. And that was actually, I found it in Toronto. I couldn't find those people from other disciplines. Whereas in Peterborough, it's really like St. John's where I grew up. I grew up watching art that had been made by artists who were all collaborating from different disciplines. And nobody thinks twice about a writer also being a musician Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, also being a filmmaker, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody blinks an eye in, in St. John's. Whereas in Toronto, there's this whole like, Whoa, what are you? You know, uh, the specialization mentality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so Peterborough, yeah, no, I, in order to make my own work, I needed to be in a place that was like that, that, that I could find people from other disciplines. And also people weren't constantly asking me what I was, mm-hmm. which is a question that nobody in St. John's asks you as an artist. They're not like, Whoa, I can't believe you do two things, you know, or six things, mm-hmm. you know, and same in Peterborough. Nobody's like, if anything, it's a little too loosey goosey where, where people will call me and say, you know, a dancer or something. And I'm just like, oh, real dancers might take exception to, <laughs> right. to that. But, uh, um, but when new people come in, I think when the other thing as I, as I get older that I'm really loving is being able to direct. That's, that's kind of just in the last 10 years, you know, I, I did a little direction before that and I'd choreographed mm-hmm. pieces, but dance pieces, which I think is great training actually for theater direction. Um, great preparation, I should say. And, uh, but yeah, but uh, new people coming in, younger artists coming forward, uh, being able to work with younger artists and learn from them. And then, you know, I offer unasked for advice. They can take it or leave it. Um, maybe some of them would feel mentored by me at times, uh, or not. I won't speak for them. Um, but I'm really loving that dynamic and that's super important. So I think that's the other part of, of the Peterborough art scene that I really love the intergenerational aspect of it. And I'm working with older artists too. I mean, I've always worked with older artists and younger artists and I, I just, it's, it's perfect. Okay. Well, that's, 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 that's a great thing to hear. And yes, I hope, uh, I hope there are, or at least soon coming new members as well, because I do feel it's, it's a great, that's what we need. 
That's a great gem. Yes. Yeah. Um, so just a banal point to end on. Um, if uh, people are wanting to pick up your uh, governor general um, nominated uh, uh, urchin, where would, uh, where would you suggest they, they look? Locally, Watson and Lou is carrying it mm-hmm. uh, down on Water Street there, uh, which is fantastic. Watson and Lou has stepped in because we don't have an independent bookstore in Peterborough anymore. And they've stepped in and they carry a lot of local authors. So, I mean, mm-hmm. holidays are coming. Go buy presents from Watson right. and Lou. I mean, they're fantastic. Uh, and you can order it online from uh, Running the Goat books and broadsides okay uh running the goat is a is a traditional newfoundland uh dance group dance that's people are are like what's with the goat i don't get the goat it's a running the goat is a newfoundland quite complicated and difficult uh dance that people can do uh it's really fun so that's uh that's what that is so you can go online and order from marnie parsons uh my my publisher okay Is it is it a bit like a jig or is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like a I don't know, like a, what are the, what are those called? Like square dances or whatever, you know? So there's yeah. couples and you do this thing, but it's really really complicated. Yeah. I've I've only ever done it at friends' weddings, and you have to have someone there who knows it, mm. and they call out and tell you what to do next because it's 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 baffling. Uh, you know, says the person with dance training. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> it's right. like, but super fun, very, uh, it's gorgeous. It's great. Oh,